0: My name is Eric Ginther. I'm on staff here at church, and I head up uh, some of our missions and outreach and discipleship, things like that. And so Brian Lambert is uh, our, our head pastor. He's on sabbatical right now, and a lot of faces out here look pretty familiar. So most of you know that. But if you're new here and you don't like what you hear today, just come back next week, and it's bound to be better. Okay, um, so I felt like this video was very, uh, I feel like I could relate to it. Uh, because there has been a time when we showed up at church with no shoes on one of our children. And I thought this would be a great uh, public service announcement for uh, growing a beard. Uh, Because anyone who tries to shave on the way to church in the car, this is bound to happen at some time or another. And so for those of you who are beardless this morning, um, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. I want to introduce the title of the message this morning. Um, As I was slurping the milk down in my cereal bowl... This morning I was really anxious as to uh, this title that I came up during uh, the, the early part of this week. It's called "Disappointed in Jesus." Disappointed in Jesus. And the reason I was anxious because this is a topic that we don't we don't hit on a lot. We don't talk about it very often because it's kind of a this is rough ground to get into. This isn't a, a super exciting message, although it will be encouraging. Uh, but but it's a topic that we need to address, because there's a lot of us that are in this scenario right now. And what I'm talking about is, is unmet expectations. Uh, it's unanswered prayers. It's a time when we get into a spot and we feel like Jesus is not coming through. And so this morning I want to start out with an exercise. because I really feel like it's the only way that we'll be able to absorb this message the correct way. And so everybody has to do it. Or, or it won't take effect. And so, everybody, take your right hand. I want you to place it right by your face here. I want you just to remove your church mask. You know what? You're going to need to put your church mask back on. That. So now we we have our church mask off. We can be honest. We can be raw, and we can be uh, just completely open about this topic. Okay. For the next 30 minutes, I want to dive into this subject of being disappointed. In Jesus now the three common lies that you hear in church every single Sunday are I'll pray for you I love you and I'm doing just great So how many of you use those this morning out of context? Yeah, I can I can raise my hand as well We, we do it every Sunday we come in. It was a horrible week and how are you doing brother Eric? I'm doing just great, you know it, we, we use these all the time and so right now let's be completely honest. Let's be raw and let's be open And let's see what the word of God has to say to us this morning. So how do we wrestle with a God that just sometimes just does not live up to our expectations? I'll give you a little bit of background about me. My wife and I were from Fort Worth. And so a few years ago when we were living in Fort Worth, we were serving in a church called Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fort Worth. And we were uh, leading a music ministry there. Uh, I I was playing in our worship team. We were leading a children's ministry as well. We were teaching in those classes. We led a small group in our home. We were very active. We loved being there. And then one day, God tapped me on the shoulder and said, Eric, I need you to go to Indiana. And I didn't like that voice because that, that meant change, and that meant relocation, and it meant cold. And so we obeyed that voice. It was in the will of God. We packed up. We took the children, and we moved 1,000 miles north. To Indiana. There was a church there that, that was looking for an assistant pastor, and so I took the position there to introduce change. And so the church that was there, the pastor had been had been preparing a foundation for change for the past few years before we arrived. And so when we got there, we were the, the culmination and the, the apex point of this change that was to come. And so we brought a contemporary worship, uh, We we created a youth group that was non-existent, and we started to see real change and real life change, real growth in the people uh, of Maryville, Indiana. A few, probably nine months into this journey, I had a meeting with the pastor. Now, the congregation that was there, they, they were not as excited as we were about the change that was taking place because it meant that Sunday school had to take place in a different room at a different time. Uh, and some other things were taking place that, that were just uncomfortable in general. And so they wanted to take the title that I had away And they wanted to, to reduce my responsibilities. And they want things, they basically wanted things to go back to the way they were. They wanted to go back to to having service at a specific time and meeting in this Sunday school classroom and doing things this way. And so here I was right in the middle of God's will. And my destiny had not taken me to the destination that I thought I was supposed to be in. I was not living this, this American dream of ministry that I had put this put this picture out of. This box that I was in was scary. This was probably one of the most scariest times in my entire life. There was no fallback plan. There was no plan B. When we moved, there was only plan A. And that plan A took us a thousand miles away from where we were. And so, what do you do when you find yourself in one of the darkest times of your life? Can you trust God in that moment? Can you love God in that moment? Can you even worship God in that moment? What do you do when God's will leads you to a place of despair? This morning, I want to talk about the story of Lazarus. And So if you're going to open to John chapter 11, we're going to start there. And I want to look at verses 23 through 25. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In this verse, in these verses here, Martha's brother is dead. And for most of us, that is the last word. There's no There's nothing after that. Once death has taken place, the nurses can leave, the doctors can go back to their office, the medicines can be taken off, it's done. Once death has come, that's the end of the line. And so for us, death is really commonplace. If you think about it, when you're driving in the car and, and a hearse passes right in front of you, We may feel bad for an instant. We may close our eyes and and throw a shout-out prayer to them. Or we we, we feel bad and we we have those feelings that we wrestle with for a few moments, but as soon as the light turns green and we take off, that, that moment's passed. It's not the same. Until it hits you. Until it hits home. Until it's someone you know. And that's exactly where Mary and Martha are right now in these verses. This is their brother that they've grown up with, they live with, they've worked with, He's dead. He's not here any longer. So in order for us to understand where and how we got to this place, I want to start at the very beginning of John chapter 11. What I'm going to do is just unpack this real quick so you can know who Lazarus is, who he really was, and how we got to this moment. So the main character is Lazarus. He's very sick, And this is not the same Lazarus that's mentioned back in Luke 16. If you jump back a few few books in the Bible, there's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's not the same guy. It's a different Lazarus, uh, but he is loved by Jesus. And that's mentioned here in the Scriptures. Lazarus was loved by Jesus and he was a friend to the disciples. And so if you can imagine this, Lazarus has probably spent some, some teenage years and some adult years with Jesus um, I'm sure they did life group together, and maybe at a discipleship community. They went and played baseball together. and Jesus hit a home run every time. Like these guys were good friends. They loved each other. And Jesus, he was loved by Jesus and he's only referenced here and in the next chapter. And so Lazarus, uh, once he is raised from the dead, he's mentioned in chapter 12. And so in verse number three, the sisters send word to Lazarus, that, to Jesus that Lazarus is ill, but they do not request for him to come specifically. Nowhere in, this, nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that, you know, Jesus, Lazarus is really sick, and we need you to come and heal him. I'm sure they had seen him do many miracles, heal uh, people who were lame or who were blind, uh, and, do, and do countless things just without even speaking. There was a, the woman who touched his garment that was healed. And so when they send word to Jesus... It's like sending word to a close loved friend. If I sent word to my mom that one of our kids was deathly ill, I wouldn't have to say, can you please come? I would know she's already on the way to the airport to come down now. This was the anticipation. This was the expectation that Mary and Martha had placed on Jesus. And I assume that the disciples, when they got the word, thought the same thing. They thought, oh, Lazarus he's our friend, he's loved by Jesus, he's deathly ill. let's go. We need to go, but that's not what happened in verse number four, it says, "But when Jesus heard it, he said, "This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. If you have a pen, underlying glory of God, because this sentence right here in this chapter is the thesis statement." For everything that is to come. You can take this verse and apply it right now, right here today. Everything that goes on in our life, it is for the glory of God. That is the purpose for everything that happens today, tomorrow, and next week. This is what it's all about. And so the glory of God is the purpose for everything to come. And God has a plan and a purpose. Sometimes our circumstances we wind up in a place they don't add up they don't make sense why are we here i'm a christian why would god put me in this this predicament or this this situation that seems impossible does he even care why me and i wonder how many times the sisters said to each other man if jesus would just show up Lazarus would be he would be healed he could go back to work he could he could eat with us. He could do these things that He used to do all the time and can't do anymore. If Jesus would just show up, this problem would be solved. And to complicate even, things even further, Jesus stayed two more days. He didn't take off immediately. He didn't pack the bags and yell to the disciples to start the car and take off and go to Bethany. He waited two more days to take off and go see Lazarus who was on his deathbed this confused everybody and if you if you read through the scriptures and you read through Jesus and his words and and his life you'll see that everything Jesus does most of the time is confusing Jesus is very rarely just straightforward with people it's always through a cryptic message or a parable or or some kind of weird saying that the disciples can't wrap their head around and so this is not really out of character for Jesus Uh, so he waits two days and then departs for Bethany. And so when they go to take off and go back to Bethany, when I read through the scriptures, it makes sense. It makes sense. Jesus is going to go to Bethany. He's going to heal Lazarus. I know how the story goes. But the part that we always skip over, and I skip over when I was reading through this message, is that the chapter right before this, in chapter 10, Jesus was almost killed. He escaped just by the skin of his neck. The Jews had stones in hand. Ready to cast at Jesus and kill him, but he escaped. This is the place that he's going back to. This is this is the town where Lazarus is. So this isn't a, a, an easy stroll back to his friend, who he loved, who's who's on his deathbed. He's going back into enemy territory, and the disciples know it, and Jesus knows it. And he's going anyway. And so, in in verse number eleven, it says. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, guys, Lazarus has died. He's dead. This is this is classic Jesus. He, he gives them this, this phrase. They don't know how to digest or what to do with it. And he says, tell, guys, Lazarus is dead. And so we know that he's not popular with the Jews at this time. We know this is where he has to head anyway to see Lazarus. But he decides to take off anyway. And so this is, this is where we are. The very first verse we read, this is where we are. And Jesus arrives in Bethany and he encounters both sisters, Mary and Martha. Meets them right outside the city. And in verse 25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, and moreover, or in whoever lives will believe and believes in me will never die. So Martha, right here in this verse, she sees what Jesus is telling her as something that can only happen in the future. He who believes in me will never die. Lazarus is already dead, so the only way she digests this is that this is something that can only happen in the future. And she says, her first response in verse 24 is, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know when you come back again, Lord, that he'll come, he'll rise with everybody else. Of course. What you're making, what you're telling me makes complete sense. And in a sense, she was right. He will. In the last days, with everyone, he will. He'll rise again in the second coming. But her faith in this moment only allows God to do that in the future not in the present tense. No one had ever seen anyone resurrected. We know the end of the story. I'm sure most of you have read it or or heard this at at one time or another, uh, countless times. We know that Lazarus will rise uh, and be resurrected at the end of the story. Mary and Martha and everyone else on the scene, they have no idea. They've never seen this done before. And so in her mind, Lazarus has to remain dead and wait for that day to come. This is what she's dealing with right now. So what Jesus is doing now is stretching their faith. He's taking what little faith they have and he's stretching it and molding it and perfecting it into something far greater than they could ever imagine. How many of you like to exercise? Yeah, me too. Yeah. So the part of exercise that I hate the most is stretching. It's not really the exercise. It's the stretch leading up to the exercise because it hurts. I don't want to be in pain before I even start the exercise. And that's what always happens. So it it hurts and then it also exposes immediately how inflexible I am. Uh, When I was in elementary school, we had to do the sit and reach. Anybody ever remember how to remember doing that? So you had to sit on the ground and you had to reach between your legs and I could never get to my toes ever. But we would practice this every day. When you go to PE class, you would sit down. And you would would do your stretches and you would reach in between your legs. And what she was doing is preparing us because at the end of the year, we had to take this physical test and you had to be able to reach so far. And so come the end of the year, if you had done it correctly every day, you would be able to reach further than you did when you initially started to do the stretch at the end of the year. So this is exactly what Christ is doing to their faith right now. Their faith began here. They were only able to see God in this box. They put limitations on Christ and said, I have faith in Jesus. I have faith in God, but only in this square. There's no, Jesus has power over everything except death. Once someone's died, how, there's no way he has power over that. And God is about to blow their minds in a few moments with what he has in store for them. So when we complete our exercises, it allows us to, or complete the stretches, it allows us to exercise easier. When God stretches our faith and puts us in a situation where our faith is going to be used, it's easier. Once we've, once we've encountered that situation we've had our faith stretched, we can walk into that knowing that we have enough faith, we have a solid framework to walk through that scenario. This is what God is doing right now in this, in this scenario with Mary and Martha. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 describes Christ as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And depending on what version you read, there's author and finisher. Uh, he is the one who, is, who has established our faith and is molding it and creating it into something new. He is the only reason for faith. So Jesus wants to see the tomb. We've come all this way. He's come into Bethany. He's encountered the sisters. There's sadness everywhere. People have come from miles to, to mourn with these women who have lost their brother. This is a big deal. And so Jesus wants to go and see the tomb. He wants to see where Lazarus has been laid. And so they take him. The whole crowd goes with. And so to set the stage here, this is pretty much your typical funeral. He's been dead for four days, but everyone's crying. Martha's crying. And Mary's crying. There are people who have come, family and friends, they're crying. Even Jesus is crying in this moment. This is a sad, sad day. There's a sect of people over here and they're saying, look how, look how he loved this man. Look at the, re- the relationship that he had with Jesus. And look, look how he cries for him. He must have really loved this man. And then the other sect of people over here, they're kind of questioning what's, what's happening here. Isn't this the same Jesus who healed, who healed the blind man? Isn't this the same Jesus that healed that guy that couldn't walk? Man, if he'd have been here on time, I bet he could have healed this guy. I bet, I bet if he would have had different set scenario and been able to be here on time, or, or if he'd have laid aside whatever he was doing and been here, man, I bet he could have healed Lazarus. And so Jesus asked for the unthinkable. And in this verse, he asked for the stone to be rolled away. And when I read this passage over initially, I skipped right over that part. And maybe you did too. But let me explain to you the significance of what is about to happen. Jesus has asked for a tomb of a man who's been buried for four days to be opened. Can you put that in present tense? Think of how much red tape and bureaucracy is involved in exhuming a dead body. There's a lot. You can't just go and dig up someone's body out of the ground. This is a huge deal. Jesus is asking, I'd like for you to open this tomb, please. I know this is sad. I know he's been dead for four days, but... Let's go ahead and open the tomb and see what's inside. And not only Lazarus is in there, there's many bodies in there. Who who knows how many people... Maybe someone just got buried in there after Lazarus. So there's someone even more fresh than he is in this tomb. And when they roll this stone away, Mary notes that it's going to stink. This is going to smell really, really bad when we open this up. And in the Jewish culture, to touch something that was dead was considered defiling. And so I always... I was thinking who was going to raise their hand and be the one to roll this stone away? No one signs up for that. And so Jesus asked, open this stone. He creates this, this awkward scenario. This is this is I call it classic Jesus. This is classic Jesus. He's creating an, a weird, awkward scenario, and he's just about to he's about to blow everyone's mind. No one is prepared for what's about to happen. And so Jesus. Jesus prayed outside the tomb. We're all the way down to verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus comes to us in the present tense to address a present need. He can bring life to the dead right there and then. He can bring hope in a hopeless situation immediately. And he can bring joy to mourning instantly. Jesus will always be the I am in our lives. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the bread of life and I am the way, the truth and the life. Always in the present tense. Jesus never said, I used to be. Or I'm going to be. Jesus says, I am. Every time. And in times of darkness, He says that He is your light. And in times of need, He is your bread of life. And in times of weakness, He is your vine. And when you are lost, He is your way. When you are confused, He is your truth. And if for some reason you feel that He is not doing what we expect Him to, it's because he has not chosen to. It's that simple. Isaiah 55.8. We use this verse a lot. But right here is so, so completely applicable. It says his ways are not our ways. But it doesn't stop. It says they're higher. His ways are not our ways. They're higher. So whenever you think you've got God figured out, this mysterious God that we worship, whenever you think you haven't figured out you've got your your brain wrapped around him. Think again. We haven't even scratched the surface of God. So we must recognize that God's timing is most of the time not our timing. And that's a really jagged pill for me to swallow. But remember this, God is never late. Not once. Even when Lazarus was dead for four days, God's never late. And nothing limits him. Think about this. Sometimes when we get ourselves caught in these these messes or these these scenarios we think God will work if the situation was better. If something was different. If if this hadn't happened, God would definitely be able to come in and work in this scenario. Or maybe if I just got my act together. It's probably me. Maybe if I did something different, if I was if I was reading my Bible more, if I was praying more, man, God would really come down and And he would really do something within this situation that I'm in. Nothing limits God. Nothing. Nothing you do, nothing your friends do, nothing the pastor does. There's absolutely nothing that limits God. Everyone at the tomb that day, they came to know that Jesus can intervene and change a situation completely if they only believe. It was the only condition placed in this scenario. In verse 26, Jesus asked her, He said, do you believe this? What a simple question. Do you believe this? What I've told you, do you believe this? Do you believe I can even if I did not come on time? Yahoo brother. Do you believe that I can? Do you believe I can even if your brother has been dead for four days? That's, that hurts. Do you believe I can turn your mourning into joy? Martha, do you believe I am resurrection and life? Do you believe this? Earlier this week, uh, we were talking, Adam and I were talking in the office one day. We were doing real ministry work and, uh, we were, we were talking. We were talking about the word believe. You ever thought about the word believe? Probably not. But this is what we do in ministry. We talk about weird words like this. So, we talked about the word believe. And what its connotations were and and the meaning of it and how we can accurately use it. And so, it's such an odd word. It's abstract. It's unseen. And it's actionless. But it's the key to opening life and death. Light and darkness. Hope and despair. And experiencing joy and sorrow. This word believe. We use it all the time. And the key to unlocking all of these is faith. An even crazier word that we use all the time. I love the definition for faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I think it's probably the most accurate description of what what faith is. Um, And it's the substance substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. That's what the Bible describes faith as. Um, But I found a great quote by George Mueller. And he says, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. That is really hard to put my mind around. To know that putting my faith in something, going through a scenario and coming out of the end, sometimes this scenario, when faith is involved, will only make sense in reverse. This situation will not make sense where I'm at now, 10 minutes from now, and maybe a year from now. I may have to have faith for a year to be able to look back and see where God had placed people and put pieces together. That is not easy to live in, but this is the mysterious God that we worship. This is who He is, this is how He operates. Look at this story. Martha and Mary waited for four days, hope was lost. When Jesus shows up, what is he going to do? He's, he's crying. We're at the tomb. What, what hope is there? So God operates in response to our faith. He asks for faith. He stretches faith. And he operates in response to our faith. Jesus' final words to his disciples. This is in John 14:1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He asked for that from us. He asked for us to place our our unfailing trust in a mysterious God that we may not understand every bit and piece of how He's going to work. And I really think this morning that all of us can really easily identify with Martha. Right here where we're at today. We we have faith in God. But sometimes things things don't add up the way we expect them to. They They don't happen how we intended, and we end up in that place. And there were times when when I question the wisdom of God's ways, I don't want to preach this to you this morning and, and and pump you up with encouragement and not not let you know that this is a real thing. This is this is the thing that pastors go through and, and real people. And we ask, why did you allow this to happen? Why can't you act earlier? And sometimes we feel like God has let us down. A few years back, we lived in Dallas, and I was working for a very credible company, making more money than I'd ever made in my entire life. And we had very nice cars. We had just built a brand-new house. Um, And about nine months into that job, God took it away. I got laid off. And so in my mind, I'm trying to... Figure out what, where am I gonna go? What am I gonna do? I, I received a severance package of sorts, and so I began looking for a job that I liked, that I wanted to do. I've got time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find something that, that really feels good and, and I can, I can excel in. And so I began to look. And I don't know if any of you remember, but, uh, October of 2008, the economy took a huge tumble. That was the month I got laid off. And so there was no jobs to be had. Uh, I looked. There weren't any out there. And so, as luck would have it, a girl that I used to go to school with and go to church with as a child pulled my application. And Amanda and I went to go work for a company called U-Haul. And we co-managed a property and we were making the least amount of money we had ever made in our entire life. And it was in this moment that it was so easy for me to look at God and say, what? what are you doing? Why me? Why would you take me from here to here? How are we going to pay off debt? How are we going to afford these vehicles? How are we going to afford to pay for a house that we don't even live in anymore? We were living on site at the storage facility. And so what God did was he took that mortgage payment away. We sold the house. God took those car payments away. We didn't have to deal with those anymore. We paid all of our credit card debt off. We ended up in a much better place than we ever thought we would be because of that. It doesn't make any sense. When you tell people that story, it doesn't make sense. How do do you do this? How do you go from making more money than you ever had to making the least money that you ever had and and it comes out okay? That story doesn't make sense. Only through God. Only through God did it make sense. I ran into our pastor at church one morning, and I was explaining to him what was going on, and I really needed a life coach at this point. I really had no idea what to do or where to go. I was, I was trying to become a police officer. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to carry a gun and ride a motorcycle. <laughs> Who's with me? <laughs> Amen. Okay. So this was, this was Eric Ginther's life goal for many years, was to be a police officer. God shut those doors. Every single one of them he shut it. It was, it was frustrating, and it hurt. Because this is really what I wanted to do. God would not let that happen. And so when I was talking to the pastor, he asked me what I wanted to do, and I explained that to him. Uh, and he said, well, either way you do it, you've got to go back to school. So I went back to school, and that's really when God started to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Eric, remember when I called you into the ministry? I know you were at youth camp. You probably wrote it off as not a big deal because you were you were young. And I was. I was young. And I just kind of set it on the back burner. Because that, that God doesn't call people who are this young into the ministry. He just doesn't do that. But it was real, and so I continued my education, followed God's call into the ministry. There's a longer story that leads us up to where we are today. But God used scenario, used a circumstance that I didn't expect to bring me to a place where He wanted me. And I had to, we had to surrender to that. We could have done our own thing. We could have kept looking for a job. We could have. We could have found another route and, and tried to work our own way into it. But God had a plan, and he had a purpose, and it was for the glory of God. God does not always respond in the way we expect. Sometimes we are caught up in our own way, in our own time. We feel like God should react uh, within the next five minutes, or God should, should do something before the end of this week, and we, we put these time limps on God. And, and these expectations, they cause us to misread. His good intention. God has only good intentions for us. He wants us to live this life and live it more abundantly. That's His plan. But we place these expectations on God that don't make any sense. And the best example I could think of was my wife. (laughs) She has a specific way that she does dishes. Man, if your wife does this, I'm just going to lift you up in prayer right now. Because my wife loads the dishwasher in a specific way every time, and that's the expectation. That's the bar that's been set. And so when I come in and load the dishwasher and I throw them in there and I shut the door, I'm not kidding. She comes right behind me and she redoes the dishwasher. And there, and it causes strife. She has these expectations for me, uh, for, for doing things that, well, let's be honest. They're just not real expectations. And she, and she places them there and it creates quarrel. And we don't fight. We don't fight. We have intense moments of fellowship. So after we set unrealistic expectations, we have an intense moment of fellowship, uh, and then this, we do the same thing with God. Think about this: our wrong expectations causes us to misunderstand Him, and we get mad. God, you, I—this is the expectation I had for you, God. Where were you, Almighty God? Where, where, what happened? This is where we were supposed to be. This is this is the goal, and this is where we ended up. What, what went wrong? And today, we're just like Martha because we believe that Jesus is God. We know that. And He's alive and He's with us today. But that isn't really what he, we need to believe. That's not what He's asking us to believe here. Jesus wants us to believe that He can do something to our situation. It is one thing to know that Jesus is God. And it's quite another to trust Him in the midst of a difficult situation. Can we believe that He will make a way when there seems to be no way? Can we believe that He can work wonders and bring hope in a hopeless situation? To know with our mind is one thing, but to trust God in our heart with a deep conviction under harsh circumstances is a completely different thing altogether. God wants us to trust Him in the thick of things. Not just when it's easy. He wants our faith and our trust all the time in every little thing that we do. And so we all know the end of this story. Jesus proved His words. Martha saw what she heard a while ago. She she saw resurrection and life. She did not see it coming, but Jesus brought her hope Enjoy despite the difficult situation. And God's plan was good, although she didn't feel that way a while ago. A while ago, Lazarus was dead, and there was mourning and there was sorrow, but now there's not. So I have a question Is it possible that God's love sometimes doesn't feel like love? I love my children. But when I discipline my children, or when I, or I correct them, or when I, when I apply love to them, sometimes it doesn't feel like love. Sometimes they don't have that same loving reaction back to me. And so, is it possible that sometimes God's love doesn't feel like love? The end result is that God has something so much better planned. Through this encounter, God revealed His glory, and many who visited that day were saved. That's uh, verse 45. There was relatives and friends and uh, family members that were there, and some of them received Christ that day because of what they saw. In verse 45, it says, uh, "Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. More were ultimately blessed." on this day because of one person's misfortune i'm sure lazarus would probably have a different take on it because he was the one who had to experience all of this and think how much his faith was stretched to be on your deathbed and waiting for christ to come and he never shows and he died we don't know what happened to lazarus in those four days when he was dead but when he walks out of the grave with grave clothes still on you got to believe that his faith was stretched further than anyone's has ever been stretched in the Bible. He was dead and now he's not. God did a crazy work. God did an amazing work in one man. Think of the story that he told. Anybody seen the movie Heaven is for Real or read the book? This guy was the walking proof of that. He, he was dead and now he's alive and he's telling the story. So this, this situation... This trust in God, this will will always be true in our lives because in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. All of the power to resurrect, to bring back life, uh, to bring back life to the dead and to transform and make new are in the hands of Christ. Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 and 19 was all authority In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What more do we need? Christ has all of the authority here in heaven, everywhere. He's in charge of it all. We don't have control over any of this. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And there's only one condition. To receiving this promise, and that's, you, that's that you believe. That's it. It's the only condition. That's that simple. So in closing, believe He is the one who gives life to what you see is dead. Believe He is the one who can bring hope to what you see is hopeless. And believe He is the one who gives eternal life, so you will never die. I don't know where you're at this morning. Uh, Some of you may be Christians, and maybe have been for years. Some of you, this may be your first time ever to walk into church. And so let me roll the tape back real quick. Do you remember when he said, this sickness will not end in death? He wasn't just talking to Lazarus. Because right after that, he says, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. When he said "whoever," he wasn't just talking to Lazarus or the people there. When he said "whoever," he meant whoever. That includes us here today, right here and now. And so, if this is a decision that you haven't made yet to believe, that's the only only requirement is to believe. And so, this morning, maybe you're in a difficult trial. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's money, relationships. I don't know. But we took our church mask off right when we started. Remember? So we're honest right now. And we're open. And we're going to be honest with God. So the response time this morning, I'll have a prayer team come and send up here. They'll be here to pray with you, to, to listen to you. I don't know what, what you're going through right now, but if you're in a difficult trial, if you're in harsh circumstances right now, maybe you need to come and talk with God. Maybe you need to come and tell God, I'm disappointed in you. But I'm going to worship you anyway. Maybe that's the decision you have to make today, is to be, is to be honest. And I can't guarantee that there's going to be this emotional breakthrough. I can't guarantee that you're going to have this, this feeling when you express to God disappointment. There may be nothing. You may feel nothing. And that's okay. I can guarantee you, though, that he's listening. And he already knows. So whatever it is you're dealing with this morning, just come and lay it at him. Come and lay it at his feet. Let's stand together.